few weeks ago, we were working through John 3, and we saw Jesus talking to um, a very different person than the person we'll meet today. There's some obvious differences, one being that in one case, Jesus was speaking to an older man, a recognized spiritual authority, a man at night, and he was a very influential man. He was a man who was at the top of the establishment of the nation of Israel. And then, in the very next chapter, we come to John 4, where we meet Jesus talking to not a man, but a woman. And not a man at midnight, but a woman at midday. (laughs) She was not, by any means, a valued member of the religious establishment, but was actually an outcast, even from her own people. She didn't have all the credentials of a well-laid life. She didn't have the admiration of those around her. What she had was five failed marriages and scorn. She was a sinner. Those around her knew it, and she knew it. And what's worse is that she was unapologetic about it. She knew what she was doing was wrong. Even her own Bible, which we'll talk about in a second, was different from that of the Jews. Even though her own Bible said not to do what she was doing, she valued the security over a live-in boyfriend, or maybe she was the live-in girlfriend, however you want to put it. She valued the security over that than to obeying God. And because of that, consequences began to roll down on her. Now, these are never consequences that people see on the front side of their sin. Other, more spiritual people around them could tell them, you're going to face some consequences here, but they never see it that way. There's always sort of a rosy idea of what this sin is going to create for them, but by and by, those consequences do catch up. Such is the case, this woman doesn't even like going out among crowds of people. It's possible that the crowds of people don't really want her around. I think, um, I think our ladies could attest that having a known homewrecker sniffing around husbands is not a welcome sight among other ladies. Okay. And so that's who this lady is. She is a member of what in modern times would be called a cult. Okay. She is a member of the, not a, a member in the legal sense, but she's a part of a religion known as Samaritanism. Samaritans had a different religious viewpoint than Jews did. They shared the same God in name, and they shared something of the same Bible, but they were different religions altogether. And as a matter of fact, if you visit the exact location where this lady was, and we know exactly where it was because the well 
that we're going to be talking about is still there and still produces. It's, it's in a remarkably faithful well. It's deep, but it's always bubbling. If you go there today, believe it or not, there is still a community of Samaritans who believe what this lady believed. Okay? So, as we look at these situations, would you say, we go from John 3 to John 4, that Jesus is talking to two very similar people? Uh, no, Jesus is talking to two very different people in very different circumstances. Yet John, in his wisdom, puts them right next to each other because he wants us to see that it's the same Lord talking to very different people. Okay, let's pick up our reading in John chapter 4, verse 1, and we'll work our way through this and go from there. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees heard had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Okay, let's, say, let's just very quickly summarize what's going on here. Jesus is new on the scene, and because of the force of his miracles, so on and so forth, um, more people are following Jesus than we're following John the Baptist, which is saying something because John the Baptist was a marvel. The Pharisees, who were friends neither of John nor of Jesus, were attempting to use this as a wedge between the two parties. You can imagine if, say, a, um, another excellent church plant uh, planted a church in one side of the town, and you had the original church in the other side of the town, and the new church started growing faster than the old church, and those who are enemies of faith start to say, ha ha, see, you guys are at odds. The two churches would say, no, 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 we're not at odds. We're just planning two different works. But that wouldn't stop the enemies of both of those churches from trying to drive a wedge between them. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were trying to drive a wedge between John, who prepared us for Jesus, and Jesus. Okay. Even though John would be the first to say, he must increase and I must decrease. Okay. At any rate, Jesus doesn't like that. He doesn't like what they're doing. He doesn't want to give them any more excuse to drive a wedge between them. And so he decides to quietly leave and go leave the Jerusalem area and go up north to Galilee. Okay. The journey involved going through an area called Samaria. Okay? Now, it was a two-day, two- or three-day walk, and so you would always have to take a break in there somewhere. Now, there's some confusion. There's been some popular preaching through the years that have, mis that have uh, overstressed some of these points. It is true that Jewish people would have no dealings with Samaritans. The woman herself says that. What are you, a Jew, doing talking to me? Jews don't have dealings with Samaritans. There are later rabbinical writings that say a faithful Jew doesn't go through Samaria. He goes all the way around. And they were certainly doing that at the time. But legalists are very, very good at bending the rules so that the rules can get them what they want, okay? And that's what they did. 
they just started bending and manipulating the rules. We played a game. I'm not saying that Benjamin Conklin is a legalist, but we were playing a game last night, and Benjamin and Chris Pennington both egregiously bent the rules to their own advantage. That's what Pharisees do. They bend the rules, and you're like... I'm not saying you're a Pharisee. That's what Pharisees do. They bend the rules. And you're like, wait a minute, that doesn't even resemble what the rule was intended to accomplish. We saw a lot of this during COVID, by the way. You know, it's just, this is what happens. At any rate, I'm going to get back into the text before I get into trouble. Um, They were very good at bending the rules. So it was common for Jewish people to pass through Samaria and they would create their own rules, bend their own rules, break their own rules, and so forth. So it says that Jesus here had to pass through Samaria. Well, what, what, what commentators will say is this means that Jesus had a, a divine appointment to meet with this woman. It was a, it, he was breaking Pharisee rabbinical rules to get himself up north, and he was obeying God rather than man. I, I don't think that, although that's possible, I don't think that's what John is intending to communicate here. I think it's more of an editorial comment. Like, because Samaria lay smack between, like, it, it would be like saying, um, I need to go to Huntsville from here in Liberty. And I can either go around the reservoir or I can drive through Eden, right? And if I'm walking... I need to go through Eden, right? And so I think that's the force of what John is saying. Jesus didn't want to go around, so he had to go up through Samaria. So it says, and he had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus... Wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Let me very quickly explain also what's going on here between these two peoples. You have the Jewish people living in Jerusalem. They were very proud of their heritage. They were very proud of their full 100% Jewish genealogy and blood. They thought that simply because they were children of Abraham, that that got them something. There were the Samarians, the Samaritans. They lived in Samaria. These were people, of course, who lived north. This is this lady. About 500 years before this, there were two kingdoms, the southern kingdom, Judah, and the northern kingdom, Israel. The northern kingdom was... uh, Killed. They were defeated by Sennacherib and his army, the Assyrians. Actually, it wasn't Sennacherib, it was Tiglath-Pileser III. Carried them away. He sent people from other nations to fill the void. So, over the course of five centuries, you had a fair amount of intermarriage between people who were Jews and people who were Gentiles. The people living in the southern kingdom were very proud that their ancestors had never intermarried. The people in Samaria, however, were equally proud that they had intermarried. (laughs) And 
what rose up between these two people groups was ended up being what was considered a very different religion altogether. The Samaritans, for example, did not view as authoritative anything outside of the first five books of the Bible. So you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Joshua forward, the Jewish people, the Samaritans said, not the Bible. Jewish people, of course, regarded Joshua forward as the Bible, but not Samaritans. Furthermore, Jewish people, I'm sorry, Samaritans changed several important verses in those first five books to read more like they wanted them to read. In many cases, all it meant was removing one letter from the Torah, the first five books. All it meant was removing one letter, and it would change the meaning, and meaning entirely. Okay? Think about it if I were to... Let's take, let's take the word need. Okay? All I have to do is add one little stroke above and lengthen out the N to an H, and suddenly it's heed. And that's an entirely different word, isn't it? Okay. Well, stuff like that happened in what we call the Samaritan Pentateuch. Okay, so they had a different Bible. They also were very passionate about where they worshipped. Okay. The Jewish people worshipped at a temple down in Jerusalem. The Samaritans had a temple on what they called Mount Gerizim. And this temple had stood for two or three hundred years. About two centuries before Jesus and this woman have this conversation, a man named John Hyrcanus, who was from Jerusalem, didn't like that the Samaritans had their own temple. And so he took a Jewish army up north and burned it to the ground. And 200 years later, the Samaritans remembered this and still did not like it. <laughs> you think about it. Imagine, you know, I know this is probably, this is probably a silly illustration, but there are still... Southerners living in Georgia, Alabama, I know many of them, South Carolina, who are still mad at the Yankees for burning stuff down when they came through the South. Okay? Joe's nodding his head. He knows this is true. Okay? They're still mad about it. Okay? And they have not kind things to say about Yankees because of it. Okay? So it's not that big of a stretch to think, oh, it was 200 years ago. Why are you still worried about that? Oh, they remembered. <laughs> and they were mad. And so instead of building their own new temple, they just continued to worship on Mount Gerizim without a temple. So let's just review very quickly. This woman is part of a religion called uh, Samaritanism is probably the best way. They didn't necessarily have a name, an ism name for it. It was just what Samaria, people living in Samaria, it's what they believed. 
they had a Bible similar to that of Jewish people, but not the same. They had excluded large sections of it. And of the sections where it was similar, they had changed some words around. And they had made up an entire body of literature and language, and they built up an entire body of theology independent of what was going on in Jerusalem. So they had the kind of their own unique religion, very similar in many ways, but in some key ways different. Everybody get that so far? Okay. Now, let's talk about this woman that Jesus is about to meet. Let's, let's pick up our reading in verse 7. Oh, by the way, the sixth hour, this is high noon. And every commentator will tell you that that autumn, to, to an original reader would tell you would send off alarm bells right there. It's high noon, and this woman is coming out to get water at high noon. Nobody goes out to get water at high noon. It's just not what you do. You either go out in the morning at dawn, or you go out in the evening at dusk. Furthermore, it was almost unheard of for a woman to go get, well, that was the job of women. It, their job was to get water, so that's not unusual. But it was also equally unheard of for a woman to go get water by herself. Okay? They almost always went in large groups, and I would assume for protection. Okay? Um, just, you know, if a lady is going to be lugging a big thing of water, she's going to be vulnerable to attack people sneaking up behind her, and so forth. And if you go in groups, then there's safety in numbers. And so that woman did not go in a group. She's, there's, so there's two points here where people would say that's very, very unusual. Okay, very unusual. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water at noon by herself. Jesus said to her, now again, this is unusual. An original reader would have gone, wait a minute, what's Jesus doing talking to this woman? And just so you know, she is surprised by that, and the disciples are surprised by that. It's surprising all the way around. He says to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. By the way, verse 8 kind of shows you that it's overstated to say that Jews never go into Samaria. In fact, Jews frequently traveled through Samaria. And because of that, there were kosher food stands in Samaria where those disciples could go and get food. Okay? They could go and buy food. Otherwise, that would have been very wrong for them uh, to do so, according to rabbinic tradition. So it wasn't as strong as some people have stated it. So they, there's places where Jews can in good conscience, go buy food in Samaria itself. So that's where they are. They're going. they're going to get food. They come, and they're still gone. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, again, we need to pull out of the text for just a moment and understand how unusual this is. I, I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine uh, going with me 
to the southern United States in about 1925. Okay, you go to Atlanta. And there are black stores and there are white stores. Actually, there's white stores and there's colored stores. And they have water fountains. Imagine a recognized spiritual authority, a white man, walking into a colored store and walking up to a black woman and saying, can you give me a drink? And she reaches out and pulls a paper cup and starts to fill it up. And he says, no, no. And he points to her cup that's full of water. And he says, from there. Don't you think that would have sort of shocked everybody around him and everybody in that store? It's not just that he wanted to touch something that she touched. That would have been wrong in this culture, according to the rabbis. What he was really asking was, I would like to put my lips where yours have been. And this is a woman with five failed marriages. And it's so shocking to this woman that she goes like this. The well's deep. <laughs> you can't have it. Don't you find that interesting? Well, the Samaritan woman said to him, you don't have anything to draw with. What are you doing asking me, a Samaritan? Jews don't have dealings. What you're doing, sir, is not accepted or acceptable. So here's a woman with five failed marriages and a live-in husband, and she's instructing him on what's appropriate and inappropriate. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God... And who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. He says to her, if, if, if you knew who you were talking to, you wouldn't be talking, you wouldn't be speaking in these strictly physical terms. You would ask me to quench your thirst forevermore, for clearly, you are quite thirsty. Now, one thing to note about this woman is that she, for all of her uh, moral failures, is a theologically driven woman. Okay? Now, that tells us something about people. People, by and large, are theologically driven. They do have a sense of God and what God wants of them. Whether they reject that sense or not is, is a, a different story. But it, you're, you're hard-pressed to find somebody that doesn't have formulated opinions about God and theology. Their theology might be wrong, but they've got opinions. Okay? And this woman does. So she asks him a question, which the rest of the chapter goes to answer. 
She says, sir, the well is deep, and indeed it was. It was over 100 feet deep, if the archaeologists are correct. She says, you don't have anything to draw with. Where are you going to get this living water to quench my thirst? She says in verse 11, I'm sorry, in verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Now, this is a theological statement. that She's saying, we have different religions. We follow Jacob. We worship on Mount Gerizim. We've got this well. This is us. You're down there. You don't have anything to draw from. You say you have this living water, but you're not greater than Jacob. Now, this is really important, because what she's referencing is something from her own Bible. In her Bible, in her Bible, the Samaritan Pentateuch, they were not looking for a person called the Messiah, which, the Messiah, you've heard of this, they were looking for a person called the Tahib. And the Tahib was a prophet who was after Jacob and was greater than Moses. And what she's saying is, where are you going to get that living water? You're not the Tahib. And she's using her own Bible as a jumping off point for that. You're not the Tahib. You're not greater than our father Jacob. She's asking it, but she's, it's, a, it's sort of an accusation. It's a, a rhetorical question meant to sort of put this young man in his place. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. I am greater than Jacob. And furthermore, and then this is actually Jesus quoting from the Samaritan Pentateuch. In the Samaritan Pentateuch, it says that the Tahib will give buckets of water to people. He, he will have an endless supply of buckets of water. And so what does Jesus do? He takes her scripture and he turns it and he says, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What Jesus is saying is you're looking for the Tahib who can give you buckets and buckets of water. But I'm telling you, I'm greater than that person you're looking for. And my water satisfies forever. I am greater than Jacob, and I'm greater than your conception of the Tahib. I know your scripture and I'm telling you, I can give you what nobody else can. Well, this woman is thinking, well, this man might know some theology. He might know my own scripture. But he doesn't know me. And I don't know him. The woman said, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty 
or have to come here to draw water. She tries to sort of turn the conversation back to physical things. She's dismissing him. Now Jesus is going to show her that he knows her. He says, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, oh, I have no husband. Well, Jesus said to her, you're right. You're right in saying I have no husband. But you've had five. And the one you have is not your husband. The one now, uh, I'm sorry, and the one you now have is not your husband. I believe the NIV translates it, and it would be appropriate to say it this way. What you have said is quite true. So, Jesus does something interesting here. He, he deals with her sin, doesn't he? He brings it, he doesn't, well, yeah, he brings it up. He highlights that he knows. And she immediately understands that even though he knows, he asked to drink from her water bucket. And even though he knows, he's still sitting at the well talking to her. And even though he knows, he's conversing with her about theology. And even though he knows, he's still offering her water that will quench her thirst forever. And what he's really saying is, is ma'am, you're clearly thirsty for something other than water. You've been drinking from this well, and you get thirsty again, but you keep going back to men, expecting men to do something for you. And every time, you leave more thirsty than when you started. But I'm offering you water, spiritual water, that will satisfy this clear thirst that you have. And if you're wondering who it is that's offering you this water, I am greater than Jacob, and I am greater than your Tahib. Now the conversation is going to take one more turn, which we'll talk about next week. But I want us to think about this passage through the week. Because there are any number of applications that could be made to it. There's an application for our own spiritual thirst. There's an application for helping unbelievers to be satisfied with Christ. And there are innumerable applications for how we should be talking to people about the Christ. And there are applications about how to use other people's scriptures 
other people's expectations and without sacrificing the truth one iota for Jesus says that God is looking for people. He says it later on in this passage in the 24th verse that God is worship, looking for people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus is not talking about creating some sort of eclectic religion that takes a little bit of this truth and a little bit of that truth and a little bit of this truth. No, he's not saying that at all. There's one truth and God demands that you worship him in that truth. However, Jesus uses this woman's understanding of God and understanding of her own scripture as a jumping off point to get to the true truth of God. Does that make sense? Like I said, there's any number of applications. A very rich passage, and I can see why John dedicated so much space to it. We'll pick it up next week. Um, I hope I did a good enough job explaining it. If you have any questions about this, because it is a little, um, the, the places, the circumstances, the cultures, the religions can all be a little confusing. So I'm happy to answer any questions um, at any time. So let's pray and we'll get ready for worship. Father, give us grace as we um, think through all the many different applications for John 4. And I, I ask that you would help us to be people who cut straight to the truth in talking to others. And I pray that you might bring across our path this week some Samaritan women who are trying to slake their thirst with things that will not satisfy. And I pray that you would help us to fall so deeply in love with the fountain of living waters and be so satisfied ourselves that we would have no problem communicating that deep satisfaction to any who would want to know more about it. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.